Good morning. Uh, thank you to Pastor Timothy. Thank you to the pastors of this church and the opportunity to uh, share the word of God with you this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, would you meet me in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1 through 7 is where we will be this morning. And while you're turning there, uh, I just want to reintroduce myself. I'm Evan. I'm staff here. It's a pastoral resident. Very grateful um, to the Lord. And if it's your first time with us, glad you are here. Uh, and we've been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes now for uh, a few chapters. And uh, in this book, we have titled this series Chasing Meaning because uh, we feel like that is the topic of discussion in this book. And uh, I think about this book, I think of a friend of mine. Uh, he's, uh, he's an atheist and we have good discussions and uh, most of the time. And uh, one day we uh, were talking back and forth and he was like, Evan, I just don't understand why people are so afraid to just understand that their life doesn't have special meaning. I mean, you, you're born, you live, you die, that's it. So why are people so afraid to, and try to have all this meaning to life? And um, I just told him, uh, yes, people differ on the nature of meaning, but it's hard to argue that people don't think there's some meaning. I mean, the reason why we get up in the morning is because we think there's meaning to it. The reason why we shower, we eat, the reason why we do really anything is because we have drawn some kind of meaning. And so the question in my mind is not, is there meaning, but uh, how deep do those roots of meaning go? Uh, do they just stop at things like your job or school or your relationships, or is there something deeper that is actually more meaningful uh, that we should be looking at. And the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes is trying to make the case that there is something beyond all this earthly stuff that we should have our meaning in. And he has various topics. When we get to chapter five, he turns his attention to the house of God. What does it mean to come into the house of God with some meaning? And so I'm gonna ask you to stand if you're able as we hear the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes chapter five, starting in verse one. Hear now the word of the Lord. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, and let not your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice? and destroy the work of your hands. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. 
the very words of our God. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord God, what a great privilege it is to know you. Lord God, I, I pray that as I speak to the ear, you would speak to the heart and transform lives. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Some years ago, I came across this article of an interview on a church done in Cambridge. This interviewer was asking the pastor to kind of explain why they do church the way they do, how they do, and some of their values. And the pastor was just explaining how they do their Sunday service and, and why they do what they do. So he started to recount his church. So they, they come together into this auditorium, and uh, when they come together, they, they sing some songs. And after they sing some songs, they hear some announcements about things that are going on in the church. And after that, they hear a message from the pastor. Uh, and after they hear a message from the pastor, they have this collection play where they go around and give money so that they can help serve needs in their community. And then after that, they, they go and they, they share a meal with each other in another room. And then it ends, and then they come back together the next Sunday and do the same thing. And you might be wondering, well, what makes this church so special? That sounds like most churches that I've been to. Why write an article about this church? Well, why they wrote an article about this church is that this church was an atheist church. And the article was titled, A Church Without God. And so this humanist community was talking from the perspective of their humanist chaplain about how they do church and God is nowhere in it. And this humanist chaplain was talking about how they want to and they try to glean from the positive things of church while trying to get rid of the negative things about church, being God. Now, I remember reading this article and just responding with frustration and offense, like, how dare they do this counterfeit church stuff? And then that frustration quickly turned into conviction. Because if I'm honest, there are times when I come to church and I'm going through the routines and I'm going through the rituals and God really isn't in any of it. Yes, I'm coming in, I'm sitting there, I'm singing the songs, I'm reading the screen, I'm listening to the sermon. But if I'm being honest, sometimes I struggle with functional atheism. And I wonder if someone in here can relate to that. That you might be in here and, and you're, you're doing the right thing. It's real nice to come to church. Maybe somebody in here, this is your New Year's resolution. Come on to church. Maybe you're in here and you're going through the motions and you're, you're here with God, but you're not really here with God. That he may be part of it, but he really isn't your focus. That maybe your focus is the argument that you had coming in to church this morning. Maybe your, your focus is the notifications on your phone going off. Maybe your focus is the midterm that's on its way. Maybe there's something going on that really has your focus and you're here. You're in the seat. You're in the pew. But God is not your focus. 
preacher of Ecclesiastes has something to say to us about this, about how we come into the house of God. When you're looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, you're seeing that this preacher king is trying to diagnose meaning. Over and over, he's talking about the futility of finding meaning in all these different things, and he uses this refrain of, it is all meaningless. It is vanity. It's like holding on to smoke. It's like chasing after the wind. He spends several chapters pointing to these various ways we might be tempted to draw meaning. He, he, he talks and looks at work and toil, and he looks at pleasure, and he looks at wealth. He looks at relationships and all these different things, and he says, I saw, I considered, and all of it is vanity of vanities, meaningless. It cannot live up to the expectations. And then he turns his attention to worship. And when he gets to chapter 5 and he turns his attention to worship, he, for the first time, begins to give directives to the audience. He, he, he breaks the fourth wall, as it were, from, you know, comic and, and film references that he, he, he's, he's stepping outside of the narrative that's been playing out, these scenarios that have been going on. And then he turns his attention to the audience and he says, guard your steps. This is his first time speaking directly to the audience, giving the audience a directive, and his response is about worship. What is meaningful worship? So he starts with this verse 1, guard your steps, then he quickly pivots to talking about the tongue and words. He's essentially saying if you want to guard your steps, you better watch your mouth. If you're trying to guard your steps, watch your mouth. Now, we might have a hard time connecting with this because we are a written culture. But in an oral culture, in the ancient Near East, your words, what you say, matters a lot. Your words were the clearest indicator of who you were and, and what you did. But in particular for the people of God, in this redemptive story, we see that words matter a lot to God. In the beginning, God spoke creation into existence. With Abraham, he, he made an everlasting covenant with words before he did anything with actions. He would say things like in Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He, he, he would send prophets to speak, to proclaim, to use words to his people. Jesus would say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, that by your words you are condemned. The, the New Testament letters would say things like, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Even James in chapter 3 says, if a man can guard his tongue, he will be perfect. Lord, have mercy. In Revelation, at the end, when Jesus comes to restore all things, he's coming and a sword is going to proceed from his mouth. Words matter a lot to God. So the preacher says, in order to guard your steps, you must watch your mouth. And he unpacks this in two ways. One, talks about guarding by being careful about what you offer and by what you vow. 
And in verse 2 and 3, he really hones in on the right way to offer sacrifices to God. He contrasts the fool and says that the fool comes into the house of God with many words and, and hastiness. But right worship is, what you offer is listening and few words. Why? Why this? What says it in verse 2? For God is in heaven and you are on earth. He's got a better angle on it. But what does this mean? Well, if, if, if he has spent four chapters talking about clarifying meaninglessness, vanity, four chapters, this preacher is spiraling deeper and deeper into the futility of trying to draw meaning from these lesser things. But what could happen if you're still convinced that these, quote, lesser things are still meaningful? What, what, what could happen if the preacher says you can't be fulfilled by pleasure, you can't be fulfilled by your job, you can't be fulfilled by relationships, but you're still convinced that that's how it's supposed to be. That you might respond with feeling threatened rather than feeling relieved. And then chapter 5, you come into the presence of God, and how might that affect your words, in particular your, your heart speech. The preacher earmarks sacrifices and vows with this whole idea of dreams. What dreams are in your life that aren't panning out the way you think they should? What dreams do you have? that just don't seem to be working out. You, you had dreams of this wonderful job and things don't seem to be working out. You had dreams of this wonderful marriage and these wonderfully well-behaved kids and things just don't seem to be working out. You, you had dreams of a wonderful church where everybody's loving and holy and it just doesn't seem to be working out. You had dreams of this wonderful education in school and A after A, achievement after achievement is supposed to give me meaning, but something is missing. When you feel that tension, where do you air your grievances? Have you ever been anxious for God to do what you think he should do? Have you ever been angry that God is not falling in line with your dreams about how life should be? God, it's a good dream, I promise. It's going to help the world. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's going to be great. God, if you love me, give me my dream. And so I come into the presence of God, and I come with a sacrifice of feedback rather than sacrifices of praise. Do what you're supposed to do according to my dreams. God, if you're good, you'll give me this. As if we can define goodness apart from God. The preacher says, don't be foolish. But I want to be careful here because I don't think the preacher is saying that we shouldn't be honest 
that, that when we're experiencing the struggles, when we're experiencing the pain, when we experience this gap between our circumstances and who we understand God to be, he's not calling us to pretend. He's not just saying slap on a happy smile. And you see this. When you, when you go through the scriptures, you see this kind of honesty, right? You, you see it throughout the Psalms, the wisdom literature. I mean, Psalm 13, it says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Psalm 77, 8, has, has God's steadfast love ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Psalm 35, 17, how long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue my life from the ravages, my precious life from these lions. Over and over, there is this visceral honesty from the psalm writers. Honesty about how they are struggling with this gap between their circumstances and God's loving, holy, gracious nature. But they never use their struggle to bring indictment on the Lord. They, they never used their struggle to condemn God and to say that he's not good or powerful or that he doesn't exist. When I think about this, I, I think about the black church. I mean, the, the black church has a rich history of adversity but looking to God. It was birthed out of adversity and struggle. When slave owners were doing everything they could to keep these slaves from having faith, even literally ripping pages out of the Bible, their faith grew. They were beaten, they were killed, they were marginalized, and it only ignited a movement that could only be explained by the supernatural power of God. And there's so much honesty in the history of the black church. They would sing songs, putting words to their pain, not shying away from it, not pretending like it wasn't there. They would sing songs like, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. A long way from home. A long way from home. Such honesty, such honesty about the pains of life. And they never use their circumstance to turn away from God. And if you're here today and you're struggling with the circumstances of life and wrestling with how does this relate to who God is, I would encourage you to pour yourself into black history. 
Because it is there you will find a rich heritage of people that can hold to God's unchanging hand. Amen, somebody. God is in heaven. You are on earth. He's got a better angle on it. Then the preacher, he transitions to verse 4. And he starts talking about vows. He, he, he continues to talk about how dreams can impact not only our sacrifice, but also our vows. And scholars go back and forth about the nature of these vows, what the meaning is from all of these. And they cite things like Leviticus 27, Deuteronomy 23, 21, even talking about Jesus when he says, let your yes be yes. And there's all kinds of things that could be said here. But let me just pull out two important things from these words about vows. One, you must understand that your commitments flow out of your affections. You, you must understand that your commitments flow out of your affections. That vows become much easier when they line up with where your heart is. And your heart is not always where your vows are. That's what the preacher is trying to bring up. That, that, that you, you, you might be saying you're giving a vow, but maybe check your heart because your commitment might actually be different from what your words are saying. So, so churches across the nation, last Sunday they were canceling service, moving events around. Why? Because there are folks in the pews that made vows to that Super Bowl. January 1st, there were gyms across the nation that were filled. You couldn't find a treadmill January 1st, but by February 15th, you can go to the gym, and I'm sure you can have your pick of treadmills. Why? Because people made some vows to that couch and them donuts. <laughs> that, that, that your commitments naturally flow out of your affections. And the preacher is saying, be careful when you think you're committed and your heart really isn't in it. That if your heart really isn't there, your words will betray you. As James K. Smith says, you are what you love, but you might not love what you think you love. Isaiah 29 in Matthew 15, it says, these people praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. If you have a vow to pleasure, to wealth, to relationships, to all these lesser things, you cannot fulfill a vow to God. As the African theologian Augustine once said, God is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. Your commitment is split. Your heart will tell you where your true commitment is. And the preacher is saying, be careful when your words are more committed than your heart. The preacher is saying it's foolish to think otherwise. The second thing I want to make sure we understand we glean from these vows is you must understand that all you have and all you are comes from God already. You really have nothing to bargain with. And the preacher is saying it's foolish to think you have something that you can offer to God as though it's yours. 
And ultimately, the vow, the, the first and primary vow before any other vow is your life. God is not impressed that you give him an hour and a half on Sunday when he's given you seven whole days in a week. He wants all of that dedicated to him. But your first vow is your life. And if you don't understand who you really belong to, you'll make foolish vows. It reminds me of a friend of mine, it's a long-standing family friend, and she has three kids under five. So you can imagine that uh, it's, it's hard to find a nice, quiet place uh, in our house. But uh, we catch up every now and then by phone. And remember one day we were talking on the phone and, and just chatting, and then her two youngest came in, and they found something on the, on the floor, like a magazine or something, and they immediately started fighting over it. You know, one daughter was like, oh, it's mine, I like this. And the other daughter was, was snatched it and grabbed it from her. And this daughter started whining, and they just started escalating, saying, it's mine, I should have it this long, all this back and forth. And my friend was trying hard to stay focused until she couldn't take it anymore. And then she turned on her mama voice. Y'all know about the mama voice, right? And some of y'all in here got a good mama voice. She turned to them and said, give me this and get out. And so immediately her daughter said, oh, we're sorry. No, we're just trying to hide. She wouldn't let it go, and I'm just trying to hold on to it. And, and mom, we can actually let you hold it for a little while. We're sorry. And they just immediately started bargaining with mama about her stuff, about how they're going to use her stuff. And so she said, nope, get out. Give me my magazine and get out. And so she gets back on the phone, lets out a sigh. It says, isn't it crazy when kids fight over stuff that was never theirs in the first place? Isn't it crazy when kids fight over stuff that was never theirs in the first place? These kids were trying to bargain with her, negotiate with her, trying to figure out a time that they could hold the magazine, she could hold the magazine, all this and that. They misunderstood who it really belonged to, and because of that, Mama took the magazine back. The preacher is saying it's, it's, it's foolish to try to make vows when you don't know who you belong to. As the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said, there is no square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Mine, it's mine. Jesus says, render to God what is God's. Not your lip service, I want your careful when you vow. One final note here. We see it in verse 7. That the preacher is, is, is ultimately making the point of how we, we calibrate all these different things. And he talks about this notion of fear of God. That God is the one you must fear. The Proverbs 1 talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And Scholars go back and forth here on the nature of this fear. Is this a fear that, that's from a son to a father? Is this a fear that's from a servant to a master? Is it little of both? We're not for sure. But what we do know is that if you do not fear God, your worship is out of alignment. If you don't fear God, your worship is out of alignment. And all of this, our lives, our words, our steps, you're supposed to point to God. That is the meaning of worship. That worship matters. 
And our worship, our lives, our words, they should point to God. Vows and sacrifices, they should honor God. But here's the thing. God knows how frail and fickle we are. He knows that the standard that he has placed of consistency and commitment we will never meet. And so he took the initiative to make a connection of his love to our meaning. In 2014, a man named Stig Cornell made international news for his death. <clears throat> Stig lived an impressive life. He was a flight instructor, he was an historian, he even made the Guinness Book of World Records. But his life was not what made international news. It was his death that made international news. This Swedish leader died at 92, and as he was preparing for his death, he said he wanted his obituary to be written a very particular way. He said he wanted his obituary to read, I am dead. And that's it. He didn't want any accolades. He didn't want any achievements. He didn't want to say anything about his family or his wife. No, he just wanted three words, I am dead. And this made international news because people all over the world were trying to figure out why he wanted to do this. What was the meaning of him doing this kind of thing? And Stig said, I just don't want to draw too much meaning to my death. Let me die and move on. But people were so astounded and impacted by these simple three words. Well, there was a man 2,000 years ago, and he lived an impressive life too. This man opened blinded eyes, healed the afflicted, raised the dead. And at the end of his life, as he was preparing, he went to a cross. And as he was about to die, he also uttered three words. He said, it is finished. Boy, if I had more of my voice, I have church by myself here. I wish I had an amen right there. He died for sins of the world, but it's not because of those words that he made international news. No, actually, one Sunday morning, he got up with all power in his hands. He was raised from the dead, and he told the people that saw him resurrected, yeah, there's actually three other words I want you to tell people. I want you to tell them he is risen. And his death has far more meaning, and he pours out that meaning onto all of us. That he so demonstrated his love, and that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet trying to draw meaning from lesser things, Christ died for us. Praise the Lord. Amen, somebody. Praise the Lord. Amen, somebody. Because he gave his life for us. And because he did, we should give our life to him. He fulfilled his vow. But will you surrender to that? May it be so that we would worship him with the right meaning. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Lord, we confess that we do not worship you as we should. Lord, would you help us to see the meaning of being in this place? Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. That by your word, you save and sanctify. Help us to surrender to this truth in Jesus' name.